Now, last time we looked, uh, we began chapter 6 last week by looking at verses 1 and 2. Those verses, for the most part, um, closed the section of discussion on church members. Today, as we look at the next section, we begin the final major portion of instruction in the letter of 1 Timothy. Now, some would include the final phrase of verse 2 with this section, the the teach and exhort these things. Uh, Now, while I took the phrase last time as referring to those two verses, uh, because it likely looks backwards, it looks at previously written things. Uh, But though I looked at it just primarily concerning verses 1 and 2, it may refer, and it probably does refer further back, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3. Um, It may even just refer back to chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 3, uh, through the beginning of chapter 6. But for the most part, that phrase likely does not look forward into this new section. This section stands um, on its own and doesn't have that there. But here... As we begin this section, Paul makes another reference to false teachers and the elements of their false godliness. So let's look at our passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 3. If anyone teaches... If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in the destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now we have two parts in this passage um, that we're looking at today. We have two parts there, the first being in verses 3 through 5, where we see the hallmarks of a false teacher. The hallmarks of a false teacher in verses 3 and 5. So let's look at those verses again and see what they have for us. Beginning back in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, He is proud, knowing nothing, but he is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. 
from such withdraw yourself. Now, first we see identifiers here in verse three. Now, Paul is again directing Timothy's attention to false teachers. He did this in previous sections of referencing when he was talking about false teachers and referencing them there. Um, And as he did in those previous parts, he doesn't name anybody. He says anyone. Now, while back, um, those previous sections were chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And in those sections, Paul focused more on the elements of the teachings that these teachers were focusing on, what, what the, the items that they were teaching. But here, he focuses on identifying the teachers and their conduct, their lifestyle. The words teaches otherwise is actually a single verb in the Greek, essentially meaning to teach differently or to teach a different doctrine. This word is used only twice in the New Testament, here and in chapter 1, verse 3. Now, in in your mind, refer back to what we talked about earlier with the end of verse 2. If we take that final phrase of verse 2 and say that it goes back further than chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it seems to indicate that any other teaching or those that teaches otherwise, that this is different, then that would indicate that that other teaching is different from Paul's teaching in this letter. Ergo, is different from apostolic teaching. But we know that just this letter to Timothy is not the basis of measuring truth. And in these verse, and in verse three, Paul gives two other bodies of teaching that he sees as authoritative and should be agreed with by other teachings if we are to see those teachings as true. Let me say that again. Paul gives two other bodies of teaching that he set, sees as authoritative and should be agreed with by the other teachings if they're to be viewed as true. Now, this first uh, authoritative or body of teaching that he gives is wholesome words. Well, um, that, that single word there, wholesome, this would better be translated as sound. The word means to be sound or healthy, In the King James and New King James, there is a comma after wholesome words, and we read, even the words of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this phrase further explains the term wholesome or sound words. The English Standard Version, the ESV, reads it this way, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is not just referring to the words actually spoken by Christ, but that he is seen as the authority behind the teaching. This would be the teaching of the apostles, the prophets, and would include Christ's own words and teaching. Now, the second body of teaching Paul refers to is that 
which accords with godliness. This is more literally stated teaching according to godliness. Now, this can be understood as either the teachings of the Christian faith or the teaching that or a teaching that results in morally upright living. One writer explains this way, the false teacher further refuses to accept the doctrine in which which is in according to godliness. The false teacher further refuses to accept doctrine in accord with and tending to godliness. True doctrine is inseparable from and conducive to godliness. Only true doctrine would cause the believer to live in a godly form. True doctrine is inseparable from godliness, and it causes us to seek to live godly. Well, how do we gauge this? How do we determine false teaching from sound doctrine? I mean, we don't have Paul or Timothy with us. We don't have Peter or John. We don't have Christ physically here teaching us or to tell us what is false and what is true. What we do have is Scripture. We have the completed canon of God's Word. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says what? It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we may no longer have Paul or Peter or the other writers of Scripture. We don't have Christ physically with us to teach us, but we have the written word. We have the words penned by Paul and the other and the others by the superintention of the Holy Spirit so that we can know what Christ taught, what Paul instructed so that we know how to grow in Christ likeness how we can grow how we can live godly lives now the second thing we need to look at in in here is in verses 4 and 5 and here we see the conduct of those teachers that teach another doctrine this is this is a list that is seen as consequences of teaching false doctrine or unhealthy doctrine. And the first thing that we see here is that this kind of teacher is proud. This is this word proud, uh, uh, conceited, um, says here, he is proud. Uh, this is the same word used in chapter 3, verse 6, as the warning that a new convert should not be a pastor, that he would become conceited or proud. The word actually comes from, the root of this word is actually smoke or smolder. 
So it's the idea of being puffed up. So we have this idea of being puffed up, conceited, arrogant. Now the very next item that Paul lists here of this false teacher is that they're knowing nothing. That he is proud, knowing nothing. The idea here is that the person is ignorant, lacking understanding. These two items work together in their description of the false teacher. Other translations bring, bring this out. The ESV says he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The New American Standard says he is conceited and understands nothing. The Phillips translation is very blunt and to the point. He is a conceited idiot. Now, not only is this teacher arrogant and doesn't really have any understanding, Paul says he is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Obsessed is also translated as morbid interest, unhealthy interest, or unhealthy craving. This idea comes, the, the idea behind this is a sickness or an ailment. You have this, this unhealthy, this sick craving of being obsessed. This obsession is, concerns, is concerned over controversies and arguments over words, maybe more specifically, centering around trifling distinctions between different words, as one writer puts it. But it doesn't end here. There are five conditions that we see here that affect the social interaction of these men, which results from this obsession of quarreling over trivial matters of words that Paul lists here. We have envy, strife, evil suspicions, and useless wranglings. Now, envy is the desire to have what belongs to another person. Maybe they're envious of, of, of another teacher or another elder and, what, and how his ministry looks or what he happens to have or maybe how he was blessed. There's also strife or dissension. This refers to creating separation or disunity. They're not bringing the body together. They're causing splits and disunity. The next word is reviling or slander. This is literally translated as blasphemies. Though the, the word here is stressing this, this abuse against other people rather than towards God. The fourth one is evil suspicions. Now, the Greek word used here for suspicions refers to forming an opinion or coming to a conclusion with little or partial evidence. You have circumstantial evidence around this person who has... And it was, it's, it's hearsay. It was told to you by a friend of a friend of a friend whose cousin was there. Okay. But that is, that partial amount of informa information is enough to, for you to make a leap to a, to a conclusion. That's this word. 
That's what we're meaning here. Now, as bad as that kind of suspicions are, Paul puts a modifier on it to emphasize it. He calls it evil or wicked. This intensifies, emphasizes the negative nature of those suspicions. Lastly, we have useless wranglings. Now, this translates a single word used only here in the New Testament. This word means constant or continuous arguing. All of this comes from men or people that are depraved in mind. Now, depraved translates a word meaning ruin or destroy or corrupt. The idea here is that the mind of these people have become morally corrupt. Not only in their morality, not only is their morality corrupted, but they are destitute of the truth. The idea here is that they that they at one time understood the truth, but now have lost that understanding of the truth. And truth here in this context likely refers to the gospel or the true teachings of the faith that is mentioned at the end of verse 3. These individuals then suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Because the teachers don't teach the truth, they have morally corrupted minds, they assume that godliness or religion is another way to accrue gain. It's just another way for them to get money, to to gain status, whatever it is. Now, whether these teachers were living out and influencing their followers with some sort of ancient health and wealth or prosperity gospel, or these teachers were simply pretending to be godly and thus deceiving others to pay for them to teach, those views are debated. Either way, in their corrupted minds, these people thought that religion was financially good for them. Now, the King James and New King James has, at the end of verse 5, from such, withdraw yourself. This phrase is not found in the better manuscripts and has little textual support. This phrase is not found, and because of that, this phrase is not found in, in more modern translations. So we are going to move past it. It is possible that some copyists in, in history inserted it because of the similarities in these verses to 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, where that verse 5 does end with, and from such turn away. But that is purely speculation. We're going to move past it here. So looking at verses 3 through 5, we see the hallmarks of a false teacher. They're teaching something other than Scripture, other than an apostolic teaching, other than the words of Christ and, and words taught with the authority of Christ. 
We've seen that their hallmarks, some of their hallmarks are also that they create disunity, that they are slanderous, that they are seeking gain, that they're not in it for Christ, that they don't have the truth anymore. Or they never had the truth. This then brings us to the next part of Paul's discussion where we, uh, where we look at verses 6 to 10. And here we have a discussion of godliness and greed. Godliness and greed. Let's read these verses beginning in verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, first in verses 6 to 8, we're going to look at contentment. So at the end of verse 5, having just touched on the false teacher's view of godliness or, or religiosity as, as a means of gain in verse 5, Paul now addresses true godliness in verse 6. And verse 6 starts with a contrasting conjunction. So instead of now, it would be better to read that as, but godliness with contentment. Paul says that there is gain from godliness. But contentment is an ingredient, is a companion. And the gain of the believer is spiritual rather than financial. Now, while God can certainly bless financially or in a physical way to those godly and content believers, that is not promised or guaranteed. Contentment is a big part here. Contentment literally means self-sufficiency. One author explains contentment like this. A state of contentment makes one independent of outward circumstances, satisfied with one's inner resources, enabling one to maintain a spiritual equilibrium, a spiritual balance in the midst of favorable as well as unfavorable circumstances. He continues, it is not a stoical indifference to or contempt for material needs. The Christian can be self-sufficient because his sufficiency is rooted and grounded in God's all-sufficiency and rests with assurance upon God's providential care. Such contentment naturally belongs to true godliness. The Christian does not just, who is content, is not despising material things, like I have this because I need to. 
it's a necessary evil that I have these material things. I would rather not have it. It's not that. We understand that we have the things that we have because God gave it to us. All we need, and we'll touch on this a little bit later, is the bare necessities and God, because God is all-sufficient. God will take care of us. Our contentment is based upon our faith in God and our belief in God. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 tells us this, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise for, of the life that is now and that which is to come. So godliness, true godliness, is great gain to the believer, and contentment adds to that as well as promoting thankfulness to God for the gracious gifts of this life. Now, after having established contentment as a companion of true godliness, Paul gives two reasons why. First, we see in verse 7, he makes a very simple statement. We didn't come into this world at birth with anything. Uh, babies, you know, don't come with their own U-Haul filled with stuff. Although plenty of new parents, I'm sure, believe that babies come with a U-Haul full of stuff. But people enter this world with nothing. And after a short lifetime, that is like a vapor, we leave with nothing. You've heard the sayings before, you can't take it with you. You don't see a U-Haul behind a hearse. It's true. We know that. Believers are especially aware of how perishable the things of this world are. And Paul's statement here in verse 7 is very similar to a statement made by Job in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1 verse 21 says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's statement there and Paul's statements here should be the attitude of the believer. It is foolish and can be sinful to be preoccupied and anxious over the stuff and things of this world. Now, the second reason Paul gives is in verse 8. Here he says that the necessities are all we need to be content. The bare necessities of food and coverings. Now in verse 8, uh, here in the New King James, it says clothing. The word is translated clothing. The word is literally covering. But the word is broad enough, general enough, that it could mean shelter and or clothing. Though the word is generally translated across the board as clothing. There's only one or two uh, translations I looked at that, that use the word covering. Everybody else said clothing. 
Now, Paul is not exhorting or urging believers to be, cont- uh, to be content. He's not saying, be content. This is what you need to do. But he is asserting a realized contentment. We are believers. We trust God will take care of us. We have food. We have clothing. We are content. One writer explains it this way. Whatever may have been our previous attitude, this is what we will do henceforth. Whatever may be granted above our actual needs will be thankfully received. But the earnest and devout Christian will be satisfied when his actual needs are supplied. Paul's words here are similar to Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, and the parallel passage Luke 12, verses 22 to 31, where where Christ is uh, reminding his listeners that God watches over the sparrow and gives them food. They don't store up food and the flowers don't spin for clothing and they are taken care of by God. So will the Father take care of us. Now, as we look at these three verses, it may seem that Paul was trying to Christianize classic Stoic philosophy. But I think that it is more likely that he was making his point from Scripture. I think the view, the background of verse 7 is Job chapter 1, verse 21. And that the background of verse 8 is Jesus' teachings in Matthew and Luke. So just as we saw last chapter in chapter 5, verse 18, though we don't have a direct quote here, we see again that Paul is referencing or pulling from an Old Testament passage and Jesus' own words and seeing them both equally as Scripture. Now, after showing that true godliness goes hand in hand with contentment, not earthly gain, Paul turns to contrast contentment with greed. In verses 9 and 10. Now in verse 9, Paul illustrates the danger of greed. Paul is not condemning those who are wealthy, nor is he implying that none of us can ever wistfully say it would be nice to have a little bit more money. He's not condemning those things. Being wealthy is not a sin. Having this fleeting thought of it'd be nice to have a little more money is not sinful. Paul is addressing the issue of greed. He is addressing the heart problem. This desire to accumulate worldly goods. This desire that causes these people to continually fall into temptation, into which they become snared or trapped, where they find themselves held down by foolish and hurtful lusts or desires. 
And ultimately, these foolish and harmful lusts or desires bring about ruin and destruction. Now, the New King James says destruction and perdition. These words are almost identical. The first word uh, that I have translated here, destruction, can mean ruin. And the second word, perdition, uh, can be translated as destruction. As a matter of fact, the first word, destruction, is the root word of perdition. So these are within the same family, very closely related to each other. Now, some uh, debate over how these words indicate uh, destruction and, and, and what the force is. Some say that there is a distinct force separating the two, that one is referring to material ruin, they, because they have gained so much, they have fallen in, they have sought gain so much that they have fallen into material bankruptcy and are completely physically ruined financially, materially. And the, uh, the other is referring to spiritual destruction. However, it may be better not to try and separate these two and just to see that the end result of a greedy heart and it's very possible that the, the double use of these words, though they're not identical, but very, very closely related, is just for emphasis' sake. Now, Paul's structure here shows, uh, indicates that the harmful desires drag down or pull down into destruction. Another way to phrase this would read, uh, would read something like completely destroy them as if they were drowning. And we have that word drown here as well. So it's that idea of this, this destruction is pulling them, pulling the person down. So another way to phrase would be to completely destroy them as if they were drowning. From here, Paul then moves into verse 10. And first, the first thing we see in verse 10 is kind of a common proverb of the time, a warning about the dangers of greed. I have heard this verse misquoted pretty much my entire life, and I've heard it even used in a critique or a question of the church of if money is evil, it's uh, then why do churches ask, ask us to give? If money is evil, then why do churches need you to give money? Well, first off, the verse doesn't say money is inherently evil. It says the love of money is the problem. We also need to remember that it says it is a root of of all kinds of evil. Not that money or the love of money is the root of all evil. It is a root. It is part of the problem. There's a difference. The love of money may be a common and very prolific cause of several forms of evil, but it is not the only source. 
One writer says the connotation of the love of money is not the acquisition of wealth in order that it may be used in prodigal prodigal expenditure, but rather the miserly accumulation and hoarding of money for the very love of it. That which should be means of support to support life is made the end of life itself. That which is, is there for us to support as a means to support our lives becomes the end of life itself. That is all we seek and all we desire is money. But Paul continues on into the second part of verse 10. And he says that some people are examples of this greediness, this love of money. Now, this may be the false teachers that he's referencing in verse 5 and chapter 1, 3 and chapter 4, 1 through 3. Or he may have other individuals in mind. Uh, Or he is just making a general vague reference to the opposition of the church. One source uh, used Judas and Ananias and Sapphira as examples of those who have strayed because of the love of money. Not, and I don't think Paul is using is using them as an example or thinking of them as an example, but he may just be making a general reference to these to this opposition of the church. Paul says that some having this greediness, this craving, this longing desire for riches, have experienced two results. First, being that they have strayed away from the faith. Their desire for riches has led them to walk away from Christ, to stop professing Jesus as Lord and Savior and walk away from the Christian faith. The second result is that they have given themselves self-inflicted sorrows or grief. The word pierced that we have in verse 10 literally means pierced through or impale. This is being used in a figurative sense here. Paul's not saying someone's actually impaled themselves because of their greed. Although that would be a foolish and harmful harmful uh, destruction that could be caused by it. But that's not what he's saying here. He's using it in a figurative sense. He's expressing the experience of something severe or painful. One writer artfully explains it this way. In their eagerness to pluck the fair flower of wealth, they have pierced and wounded themselves with its sharp, unsuspected thorns. A condemning conscience assails them and destroys their happiness. A condemning conscience assails them and destroys their happiness while they suffer under their poignant disillusionment. Now, we all struggle with contentment. The monster of materialism rampages through our hedonistic society. We are told night and day that you deserve 
the best, the newest, the flashiest, the most. Whether it's the newest, flashiest phone, the largest library, the newest kitchen appliance that will save you cooking time so that you can have more leisure time. The newest piece of farm equipment, the fanciest shoes, the fanciest dress or purse, whatever. We are bombarded with that night and day. Paul reminds us in this passage that greed, a selfish desire to acquire more so that you can be satisfied in something other than Christ, is the problem. Greed, in my opinion, is just selfishness, which comes from our pride. And sometimes from a lack of faith. Now, this doesn't mean that it's not okay to have new things or that it's not okay to be wealthy. The Lord can and does bless individuals in material ways. But the point of the passage is, first, don't confuse health and wealth for godliness. And second, don't let a desire of things or money sway you from trusting Christ and finding your satisfaction and contentment in Christ. Without Christ, we have nothing. Because of Christ, because of God, we have everything. And we have what we have, what we need. What more do we need than Christ and or the Father? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminders found in this passage. Lord, it's so easy to be swayed by certain things. We are bombarded every day with buy this new thing and you'll feel better. Try this and you'll feel better. Lord, the only answer is you. Lord, we can struggle with greed and discontentment, but we know these aren't godly things. These aren't Christ-like things. Our contentment should be found in you. And Lord, we know that there are teachers out there proclaiming Christ, but teaching a different doctrine. Teaching a doctrine that says, if we have enough faith, you will give us all, give us more wealth and make sure we are never sick. Lord, you, it's a different doctrine. And we need to turn away from that false doctrine. We need to focus on properly understanding your scripture so that we have, so that we know how to grow in Christ's likeness, how we can be godly. 
So Lord, we thank you for the reminders in this passage. We pray that we will be able to see things more clearly. Help us to look at the world through the lens of Scripture and be reminded that you are all that we need and that you will provide the things that we need. Help us be content. Help us to be humble. And help us to be thankful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.